filled with teaching, truths and issues that matter. Bernie Diamond's A Different Perspective, part of Night Vision each weeknight. Details at vision.org.au. Life, culture and current events from a biblical perspective. 2020 on Vision. As you know, persecution against Christians around the world continues to grow. And one of the most obvious examples, of course, on the weekend, and we were talking about that briefly with Martin Isles just a few minutes ago, uh, one of those most obvious examples, of course, three churches. These are Christian churches in Indonesia bombed on the weekend by members of the same family. Uh, almost hard to even uh, understand what sort of motive and what might drive an individual or even a family to do that sort of thing. 11 killed, 41 wounded. Well, some will be monitoring the upswing in Islamic attacks during the month of Ramadan. And no doubt authorities here in Australia will be very aware that there are possible dangers even on our shores. So when we consider the idea of support for persecuted Christian believers around the world, well, our first thought might be to pray. A second thought might be to send some level of aid and support for churches that are dealing with extraordinary hardships. But today we're going to take it a step deeper in how we as Christian believers might bring our own support for the persecuted church with a focus on what really can make a difference by way of political advocacy. Elizabeth Kendall is joining us for a conversation over this next hour. Elizabeth is a religious liberty analyst. In fact, she first started in that role 20-odd years ago with the World Evangelical Alliance Religious Liberty Commission. These days she's independent and uh, she holds a number of roles, wears a number of uh, caps. She is an adjunct research fellow in the Arthur Jeffrey Centre for the Study of Islam at Melbourne School of Theology. And importantly today, uh, some focus on her work as Director of Advocacy at the Canberra-based Christian Faith and Freedom. A special welcome back to 2020 to you, Elizabeth Kendall. And thanks for having me back again, Neil. Elizabeth, usually we're tackling issues, uh, the big ones that are going on around the world. And uh, we talk about ideologies. We talk about where our faith fits in all of that. Uh, You've written a number of wonderful books that really dig deeply into issues of persecution and uh, and especially when it comes to uh, Islamic persecution, although our conversations have ventured to North Korea's situation and uh, things that are going on in India and developments in China and uh, all sorts of clashes of ideologies, Christians are often the meat in the sandwich when it comes to all of these nations. So we're talking internationally and nationally here in Australia. Uh, when you're working with uh, the, uh, the, the organisation, which we'll talk a little bit about today, Christian Faith and Freedom, what sort of advocacy role do they have? Well, Christian Faith and Freedom would define its purpose as uh, alerting governments, and by that we mean uh, members of parliament, ambassadors, <clears throat> as well as uh, officials, such as officials at the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, so alerting governments to the plight of persecuted Christians. And um, it's actually a, quite a unique work. There's not a lot of people doing it, like particularly in, a, in Australia, uh, it's quite unique. So 
uh, whenever there's a call for a submission to be made ahead of a, a bilateral human rights dialogue or something, we will always uh, put in a submission uh, to whatever that dialogue is. We also send, um, are trying to send work in uh, pretty much on a weekly basis to wherever it is most uh, relevant. It's usually to the uh, desks at uh, DFAT, Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, just to keep uh, issues constantly in front of them because, um, you know, thing, uh, I, I think that the, the plight of the persecuted Christians needs to be emphasised by someone and, uh, and there are lots of ethnic groups who are raising their issues but uh, there's actually no one else that is really devoted to raising the plight of persecuted Christians globally and the threat to religious freedom globally uh, in the way that CFF does. Well, Elizabeth, having had so many wonderful conversations with you and many of our listeners will know your name as a regular guest on 2020 and talking through these issues. When we talk about things like the three churches under bombing attack in Indonesia on the weekend, and we say, well, isn't that something that someone in Indonesia ought to be saying something about uh, at a higher levels, political advocacy? Really, uh, in our own context, our own backyard here in Australia, we might be saying, who is talking to our government? And as you say, DFAT, our D- Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, who's talking to our people about what's going on in Indonesia? This is what you're saying is that uh, the sort of work of advocacy happens uh, internationally by actually starting with keeping our own government informed. Well, that's right. I mean, we can send a letter, say, to one of our own ambassadors um, uh, who's in, a, in an embassy somewhere. For example, in Vietnam, when there are uh, law cases coming up before the courts, uh, we will uh, encourage uh, the embassy to make sure they have someone present in that court case. Uh, we will send a, a, a paper to DFAT um, outlining the uh, the approach of the case and some of the issues involved, and um, just to keep just to keep these things before our representatives, because you know, otherwise they slip between the cracks. They really do. There's, I, I think, um, it seems it sounds like a shocking thing to say, but religious freedom and the persecution of Christians is not really high on the priorities for a lot of our officials. Now, they say that it is, and I think they like to believe that it is, but it actually isn't. It's actually, in my opinion, from my observation, it's a fair way down the list. And, uh, and I know that from my experience. And In fact, I can give you an example. Uh, it was way back when I first started going to the annual... Uh, human rights forums that DFAT runs, and these can't can't be sort of quoted, so I can't give names or anything. But it was just a simple a simple thing where uh, the head of the um, I think it was the Southeast Asia desk came down to tell us what they'd been doing all through the year about uh, Laos and Vietnam, and uh, they talked about you know we've we've been lobbying for this, you know, prison reform, we've been lobbying for LGBTQ, you know, acceptance, we've been lobbying for disability uh, cases, all these issues. Now, he would have spoken for more than five minutes, maybe even ten minutes. It was quite exhaustive, and he never once mentioned religious freedom. So I put my hand up, and, uh, and I said, um, you never mentioned religious freedom. 
And I said, but I'm sure you're well aware that the majority of refugees who come from Vietnam and Laos are from the ethnic minorities who happen to be Christians. They're, they're ethnic Hmong, they're ethnic Montagnard, and they're being persecuted for their faith and driven off their lands. And, um, and he acknowledged that. And then he went on to talk a little bit about their, what they had lobbied for with regards to religious freedom and persecution. And the things that he said actually convinced me, yes, he, this is true. He's not just making this up because he said things that all made a lot of sense. But I thought to myself, why didn't he tell us that in the first place? And then it occurred to me that he just assumed that no one in that room of 60 human rights workers would give a damn. Okay, well, when... uh, and I really, and that was, and you know, I think that was essentially the truth. And then afterwards, uh, we had lunch, and people were coming up to me, even you know, the heads of you know human rights in Asia, you know, and stuff like this, were saying, "I didn't realise there was that sort of persecution in Vietnam." And I thought, goodness gracious! But there was the assumption that no one was going to care about religious persecution. I'm convinced that was the case. So for me, it's a matter of keeping the subject alive, really. Uh, what you're describing is really uh, the idea of political correctness that even comes to the way that uh, people in the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade might even assume that people are interested in the sorts of things that they're working on. Because as you say, uh, there is some activity that is pointed towards the idea of uh, addressing religious freedoms, but uh, the assumption that no one's really interested in that, so therefore we won't put it in our priorities. It really needs yeah, exactly. to be raised, doesn't it? It needs to be raised because this PC yeah. idea is, uh, is, is, is costing lives. Well, that's right. And I think, I think the fact that they're really, um, apart from uh, CFF, there's, there's not a lot of voice. I mean, CFF's actually been really working with a number of um, ethnic groups that are Christian and they've been helping them to get places at that forum um, and uh, they've been helping them uh, get appointments with, you know, the, the foreign minister or the minister for immigration or different officials to try and um, uh, really you know, really raise their plight and sit down and really talk about it. And, you know, our, our officials are not ignorant, but they, they, do, they make political decisions. So if they think that, that the population doesn't care, then it's not going to be high on their priority. This is why I feel so strongly about the church, you know, really raising its voice in this issue, because... You know, as I said, the government makes political decisions. They know these things. They know that the Christians have been almost exterminated in Iraq. They know all this stuff. They get buckets of intelligence, you know, dumped on them every day, and they have whole desks of people devoted to, to sift through it. But um, the thing is that they make political decisions, and if they think it's not of any interest to anybody because no one cares about religion anymore and, and the churches don't raise their voice, then it becomes a non-issue. The churches, the, especially the heads of churches, need to be speaking out about this. They need, and not just speaking out publicly and making public statements in word and in print. Pub, you know, the archbishops and the heads of denominations need to be sitting down with some of our uh, political leaders and saying, look, you know, you really need to do something about, 
you know, the, the, uh, the erosion of religious freedom in the world. Uh, but there's basically silence uh, coming from the churches. Elizabeth, largely. what do you know about our big denominations in Australia? Do they have people who are working in these areas of political advocacy? Is there uh, in, say, uh, the Anglican Church uh, or the Catholic Church or the Uniting Church? I know the Uniting Church has, has a, quite a lot of uh, influence when it comes to uh, the way that they want to get their voice heard. But what about these other big denominations? What about the Presbyterian Church? Uh, uh, what about the Pentecostal churches in Australia? Do you know whether they are, in fact, even interested in uh, these issues of advocacy for uh, the persecuted church and for freedoms? I would have to say that I I couldn't answer that fully. I don't really know. Uh, but the, thing, the fact that I am devoted to this work, I am full-time in it and have been for 20 years, and I can't even tell you if someone in the, Angli- if the Anglican Church is doing something, indicates that it's certainly not coming past me if it is. Like, um, I, I think there's very little. Now, at Synod a couple of years ago uh, in Melbourne, um, there was uh, the only the only ref- there were two references I would say in three days of synod meetings uh, concerning the persecuted church. I wasn't there last year. This was the year before. But um, there were two references. One was a reference to there will be a, a prayer meeting with some Sudanese leaders uh, between them and the archbishop in the back room over lunch. So we were informed that there would be a prayer meeting with some South Sudanese leaders because they were all, all suffering, you know, worried about the suffering in their country. The other reference was a thank you, um, a resolution to give a vote of thanks to the Archbishop for writing a letter in defence of Asia Bibi. And that was it. That was nothing. And um, so... I've, I've written my own resolutions, which I hope to get there at some point. I wasn't able to do it last year because I was overseas. But So my, my understanding is that there's largely silence. I also do know, though, that the Presbyterian Church in Melbourne, and I can't talk about any other state because I'm unaware of it, but the Presbyterians in Melbourne, they actually have a commission that actually works on this. So they're doing a fair bit of uh, good work. Oh, they have been for quite for some time, and they they seem to be fairly aware, and and uh, they bring these issues into their conferences, and uh, there seems to be a, quite a good deal of awareness with the Presbyterians here in Melbourne. But you know, there can be a lot more, and there, there needs to be a standing together of of Christian leaders. I think the Catholics have been quite aware too, and quite quite vocal, but um, certainly uh, in Sydney. But uh, there needs to be a coming together, I think, of Christian leaders uh, and standing together and saying to the government, we're not content that you remain silent on this subject. Well, of course, this is not a criticism of Australian churches, but what I can hear in your reflection is that there's an identified weakness uh, that there are our major denominations really represented, uh, representing the whole of the Christian church in Australia who are doing very little, in fact, at this level of political advocacy. And uh, perhaps they're relying on someone like yourself, Elizabeth Kendall, uh, because with your work with Christian Faith and Freedom, they're, th- they're thinking, well, uh, Elizabeth has a wonderful way of putting things. We'll leave that in her hands. What you're saying is that a little bit of support, a little bit of a cheer squad, uh, even a financial, a financial foundation uh, underneath 
Christian faith and freedom might be a very useful way to unite a church's voice or the church's voice uh, to these big issues. I mean, there's what you're identifying is there's a lot of ways to go here uh, which are not being attended to by the denominational churches. Maybe you're going to have to rely on that particular uh, mum and dad who are saying, well, I really want to get behind Elizabeth here. I want to get behind Christian faith and freedom. Perhaps it's this sort of grassroots support that's going to be necessary. Uh, well, yes, that, that is a possibility too. Well, there are a number of possibilities for uh, funding, but when it comes to the churches, I think it's even, it, you know, I think churches fail to realise actually the the value of supporting the persecuted church and speaking up for the persecuted church and being engaged with the persecuted church. You know, a lot of pastors and churches and church leaders, you know, I know they're busy and they're often... Uh, they feel swamped with problems and complexities and paperwork and the persecuted church is just far away and that's the first thing that they really can whittle off and, and shed that burden. But um, I actually believe that there's great value in it and I often say to people, you know, the Bible tells us to bear one another's burdens and in this way to... Um, to uh, display the, the love of God, the law of God, which is the law of love. And by taking on the burdens of the persecuted church, we do not compound our burdens. We actually displace them. They, they get put into perspective. And it does a couple of amazing things. When a church uh, really does engage with the persecuted, uh, they become aware of the sufferings of their persecuted brothers and sisters. The Holy Spirit within the believers uh, yearns uh, for the, their suffering brothers and sisters because the Holy Spirit yearns for the bleeding and suffering body of Christ. So it, it can change a whole church's perspective on things. Um, instead of the carpet being the most important thing in the world, all of a sudden there are bigger issues to concern yourselves with. You know, there, it, it actually has a really profound effect. It also helps Christians uh, really come to understand that they are part of something very big. Uh, it's not just us uh, living here in, in our little suburb or, our, or in our city and there's hostility around us. We are some, part of something historic and global and it's big it's really big and we get as soon as we start to really engage with christianity at a global level like that our perspective on our faith and our place in the world it all changes and and you start to see what god is doing in the world and you start to see the spiritual conflict that is going on in the world and you become part of something big. And all of a sudden, your life can take on like a renewed meaning. You know, I'm not just this little ant on the ground. I'm actually engaging in an, in an amazing spiritual battle. And I'm going in to fight for Christians who are on the front line and, and to support them. It, it, cha it, it, it has value beyond what pastors and denominational heads can even imagine but they, they often don't realize that until, until they're actually doing it. Until they're doing it, they're afraid of it. They think it'll be too much work, it might cost them money, people might send their money somewhere else, but actually it makes people generous and sympathetic and loving of the body, and um, I think it has value uh, that, that it's just immense, uh, beyond measure.
Elizabeth Kendall is our guest. She is a religious liberty analyst and a focus today on her role as Director of Advocacy at the Canberra-based Christian Faith and Freedom. And uh, let me just let you in on this idea uh, that the Christian Faith and Freedom is looking for new friends, uh, new prayer partners, new supporters. And let me point you to, there is a website, christianfaithandfreedom.org. Life, Culture and Current Events from a Biblical Perspective, 2020 on Vision. Elizabeth Kendall's our guest and a conversation perhaps like you have never heard before. The idea of advocacy that happens at the highest level of government here in Australia and around the world when it comes to care for and support for and relief for persecuted Christian believers. Elizabeth Kendall, our guest, she is Director of Advocacy at Christian Faith and Freedom. So a little focus on Christian Faith and Freedom today because they're doing very, very good work. And a lot of their very, very good work happens through Elizabeth Kendall. And as those who were, would be very familiar with Elizabeth's ministry, uh, you'll know the sorts of things that she is able to communicate. And Elizabeth, your communication skills here, uh, which I might say are extraordinary, uh, they come to life when you have made a submission at uh, highest levels when we talked about DFAT, uh, but uh, bilateral human rights dialogues. I mean, these are the sorts of things that most of us don't hear anything about, but you're in the loop and you're in those meetings and making representations and writing up submissions. Uh, Tell us about how that work actually happens and, and what value it has when it comes to contributing a Christian voice into these issues. Well, for, for me, it has a number of values. So I just so like to sub, if anyone's read my first book, after, uh, Turn Back the Battle, the real subject of that book <clears throat> is that God does the work. God saves his people by grace through faith. So whatever happens, God is the one we, we should trust. There's no point putting our trust in human beings or our trust in political processes. So I can lobby and advocate all I like, but unless God builds the house, I labor in vain. And this is why we really, really need people to, to be praying for this work, because we want, because nothing comes of it if God doesn't bless it. Uh, it's just work. So for me, it's, I, I feel very, very strongly about, uh, it being uh, twofold, so I always try to give really good, concise on, like, say, uh, uh, an issue that's um, that's uh, contemporary, the issue at hand, uh, say, in Iran or Laos or Vietnam or something, but also to um, to ex- to break down stereotypes. You know, we're dealing with people, uh, officials who. Uh, you know, they've grown up in this, like a post-Christian age. They've grown up with uh, buckets and buckets of anti-Christian propaganda being pumped into their heads all the time. A lot of them are biblically illiterate. They really actually don't know much about Christianity at all. And like when you say the word missionary, I'm absolutely positive they think of this you know, white Western missionary who's going to go in and, you know, like tell people what to do and ruin their culture. I'm sure that's their stereotype. So breaking down these stereotypes is really important. It's, it's, it, this is way beyond just saying, this guy's in prison, will you speak up for him? So, for example, 
Um, whenever Australia is holding a bilateral human rights dialogue with another country, so that means two countries talking to each other, right, bilateral. So like the most recent one was Australia with Iran, and it was the first time Australia and Iran had ever had a bilateral dialogue. So they're talking on human rights. And so before this dialogue happens, uh, Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade will put out a call to human rights uh, groups saying, would you like to submit, you know, a submission and we'll take this into our consideration. So, you know, I wrote a submission and the, the first thing I wanted to point out was the phenomenal growth of Christianity amongst Persians, both in the diaspora and inside the Republic of Iran, and that this is undeniable. So I pointed out that in 1979, when the revolution happened, there was an estimated 500 Christians in Iran, and they were virtually all ethnic Assyrians, maybe a few Armenians as well. Now, the government today recognizes that there's at least 200,000 Christians, but actually most people believe it's well over a million Christians and could be approaching 2 million. In fact, some people say that there are well over a million believers and a further several million who, if they had freedom and were not so afraid, they would convert. So they're interested. Now, this has got nothing to do with Western missionaries. And these believers, the thing that's really hurting the, the uh, Islamic clerics is that these believers are they're Persians. So they're Farsi-speaking Iranian converts from Islam. Elizabeth, is we're going to have to cut in because issue. we're about to go to news. And I don't want to lose this train of mm -hmm. thought because uh, you're sharing some wonderful things. Now, Elizabeth has been doing this for 20-odd years, uh, working in advocacy, uh, which she sees as not just activism, but it's almost like a missionary role and something a little bit attuned to what we might think of as chaplaincy. So you've got chaplains, say you've got a chaplain in a sporting club uh, having a huge influence on not just the the coaching staff but the players uh, in doing an amazing thing. So what happens with our highest level government officials? Elizabeth Kendall, as we talk about what this word advocacy means, it's good to be able to sort of, you know, take us a little bit deeper and have a, a little bit more careful understanding. You do see yourself as a missionary uh, and it's a missionary to some of these higher level government gatherings. Oh, absolutely. For me, that is uh, very much part of what I do. So I, I see that I've been given an opportunity to, to tell government officials what's happening in, say, a country like Iran that we're talking about in, in terms of Christians being arrested and things like that. I have that opportunity, but I cannot, uh, I cannot resist the temptation, really, to see this as a platform to uh, deal with a whole lot of other issues and to, to break down the stereotypes that, you know, that people seem to think, and I'm sure that most people who actually work at in our government departments think that Christians are white, Western, middle-class people and they don't seem to realise that the majority of the church is coloured, non-Western and poor and persecuted. And... Um, it's not the way they think it is. So they need to have their stereotypes challenged. They also seem to think that Christians are usually a bit stupid. You know, they're taking, you know, smoking the opium of the people sort of thing, uh, leaning on their crutch, their Christian crutch. 
So to have them, you know, face up to the fact that in Iran, as much as in China today, Christianity is an urban movement, as it was in the early Roman, in the Roman Empire. It's an urban movement. It's being embraced by, by intellectuals who are now able, in Iran, you can now actually download a modern translation, a Farsi translation of the Bible onto your smartphone. And uh, this, these things are the reasons why, or in part of the reasons why Muslims, especially in the cities, especially amongst intellectuals, are becoming Christians. And, you know, with regards to Iran, you know, I was saying before the break, I, I wrote a, um, a submission on Iran last year, and, and I explained about the phenomenal growth of, uh, of Christianity amongst uh, Persians, ethnic Persians. And these are Christians who are converting from Islam. I spoke about the developments of you know, technology with the Bible now being fully translated into a modern edition available on the internet, on your smartphone, uh, everywhere. Um, I explained uh, the different, you know, the, the reality of Persian culture, how it is creative and musical and artistic, and so it fits more comfortably into a Christian uh, culture. And, and it doesn't sit comfortably at all in, um, in, into a hardline fundamentalist Islamic culture at all. And this is why there is so much tension in Iran, because there is a revival of Persian culture, and Persians are wanting to break out of that straitjacket of Islam. And the clerics realize what a threat this is, and that this is why persecution and repression is escalating. So like in my submission... I spent my first page just outlining that context and then I spent the next page outlining the, uh, the sentences, really harsh sentences on 12 Christians in just two months and I raised the plight of Ibrahim Farusi, a young 30-year-old evangelist who they've sent to a uh, maximum security prison where uh, he's suffering really, really terribly. So I was... But I, to me, it's really important that everything's in its context so it's understood and the, all the stereotypes are broken down and those DFAT officials can go home and think about it. They can go home and think, why are Iranian intellectuals converting from Islam to Christianity? Why would anyone do that? And they start thinking, maybe this is not a religion for silly people, not a religion for people who don't know any better. This is, it starts to make them think, and um, and, uh, and and same with my my uh, submissions on Laos uh, and, and Vietnam and Nepal and other ones I've written. I've really pointed out that it is the church in those countries that is following Jesus, and in following Jesus, they are feeding the hungry, they are healing the sick, they are going to no end of the of effort to to build our schools and medical clinics all over the country. They are defending human rights. Uh, in, in Vietnam, uh, the people who are, who are repressed and abused, they will tell you that it's the church that is leading the, leading the fight for human rights and justice in the country. So the church is, is, not, is not what a Western person thinks because they get all their impressions from watching the news. 
and, and watching the latest report on child sexual abuse, you know, in, in Boston or something. The church is actually something completely different from anything they've ever thought about before. It is Iranians going to prison. It is uh, Nepalese uh, climbing every mountain to take, uh, you know, the prospect of a new life uh, to remote regions. It is um, Vietnamese church leaders putting their lives at risk to speak up for justice and human rights. And if we care about those issues, we need to defend religious freedom because it's absolutely linked to religious freedom. If you don't defend religious freedom in Vietnam and Laos and, and, Viet, and Nepal, then all these services are going to disappear. So breaking down the stereotypes and really educating uh, like DFAT officials as to what Christians actually believe, what they actually do, um, that's, uh, to me, a huge part of the work. And I pray that they go home and think about it in their beds at night. <laughs> Elizabeth, uh, in a moment, I'm going to get you to explain a difference in what happens in a number of uh, ministries because I know that listeners will be saying, well, I'm already supporting the likes of Open Doors or the Barnabas Fund. Mm. Uh, these are wonderful organisations, and uh, I just love those organisations because they have a way of getting aid into support persecuted Christians in some of the most difficult places on earth. I'm going to ask you in just a few moments, what's the difference? Because uh, when your organization, when we talk about Christian faith and freedom, you're dealing with an issue of advocacy here, uh, how it's a little bit different to what the work of others is. And uh, equally, and uh, we might even we might even err on the side of saying even perhaps even this is the most important thing that's got to happen, is this level of advocacy. So we'll come to that in just a few moments. Moments. I do want to invite listeners into our conversation at 1-800-316-316 if you'd like to contribute uh, or you can leave a message on our Facebook page. Uh, facebook.com forward slash vision radio in fact uh, one that appeared just a little while back on our Facebook page Jim says Neil what about the Pentecostal church? Uh, it probably has more active members than any of the others. Now <laughs> that might be arguable but when it comes to uh, the Pentecostal Church, uh, reflection from you, Elizabeth Kendall. I mean, this is all churches uh, needed here to to be raised up and to respond. But uh, he's uh, uh, Jim has asked about the Pentecostal Church. What are your thoughts? Well, I, I really can't answer because I just don't know. Um, I'm not in. I'm a, a fairly conservative Christian. I'm a member in an Anglican church, but I'm a Baptist at heart. Probably a Reformed. Baptists are fairly conservative. I just don't get invited to Pentecostal churches. I know that Pentecostal churches, there are Pentecostal churches that, um, you know, uh, have connections with groups like Open Doors and, and other churches, but uh, I'm not, I really can't answer that question. I really don't know. Uh, how much involvement they have. Okay, well, there's a little note here, you know, note to self, uh, Elizabeth Kendall doesn't get invitations to Pentecostal <laughs> churches. Well, well, I mean, who knew? I mean, I'm sure yeah. listeners and long-time listeners to this program will think that you must be one of the most in-demand speakers because uh, you're really unmatched with the way that you deliver, the, the way your, your insights and understanding of what's going on. So uh, for listeners, uh, you know, invite Elizabeth Kendall. 
invite uh, representatives from Christian Faith and Freedom to be a part of your church. You might have conferences, you might have special weekends, uh, special missions conferences. This is the sort of thing uh, that you could certainly involve Elizabeth Kendall and Christian Faith and Freedom in. Uh, Coming back to this difference between aid and advocacy, because uh, it's easy to send a few dollars to uh, wonderful organizations getting aid into various very hard to get to uh, support situations for Christian believers. Tell us about this difference that uh, that is in the advocacy focus. Yes, now this is something that a lot of people uh, don't really understand and even people within the organisations actually don't always understand and it can cause some conflict but you must always keep aid and advocacy completely separate. In fact, and not just advocacy but... Um, uh, you know, the whole work of raising awareness of the, the abuses of government and of religious liberty issues, you have to keep that 100% separate from the work of doing aid. Because just think about it, if I wanted to go into uh, Nepal, say, with, with aid, for, um, even for the persecuted church, or if I wanted to go in with aid for earthquake victims, any aid at all, and the government looks up my website and they see a whole lot of criticisms of the Nepalese government for their lack of religious freedom and their this and their that and their this and something else, they won't let me in. So if I want to do aid, I have to let someone else do that work. You need to separate it. And uh, I have seen organisations become seriously unstuck because they tried to do both. And what they have done then is they've said, well, we want to get in and we want to get in on the ground and so we'll stop criticising the government and then they'll let us in. And what that does is it means that the work of advocacy or the work of just raising awareness and informing the church of what's happening all gets corrupted or it gets pushed out. And this has been, I've, I've experienced this. I, I know what I'm talking about here. This, these subjects, they have to be kept completely separate. Some groups have done very well at putting, at developing uh, two parallel missions. So they actually have an arm that it does aid and they have an arm that puts out news. And, but they'll have different names, they work in different fields and there's complete deniability. And that's the only way to do it. So groups like Open Doors, Voice of the Martyrs and Barnabas Fund, they specialise in getting aid in on the ground. So you give money to a group like Open Doors, they can actually go in on the ground. They are an aid group and they will get into a refugee camp. They'll put money into the hands of pastors who will then feed their flocks. Um, Christian Faith and Freedom does a little bit of aid, but not much. But all of the aid we do, we do indirectly. So, if, for example, we have a commitment to a couple of groups and we get aid in indirectly. So, uh, like we use Samaritan's Purse to get aid into the Nuba Mountains, things like that. It's indirect because the fact of the matter is if anyone looked at the work that CFF is producing, they wouldn't let them in on the ground. So you have to keep the two things separate. So CFF does minimal aid and it's all indirect and groups like Open Doors, Voice of the Martyrs and Barnabas Fund, they focus on aid. And if they want advocacy done, what they usually would do 
is outsource it to someone else. Visions 2020 with Neil Johnson. A biblical perspective on life, culture and current events. Elizabeth Kendall is our guest and a focus today on her role with Christian Faith and Freedom. It is a advocacy mission organization and Elizabeth's done a wonderful job just breaking it down to say that she's like a missionary to the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade who have no idea what a Christian is or what a Christian does and she brings into that setting uh, the most incredible uh, opportunity to enlarge and educate and grow in understanding how the Department of Foreign Affairs and Aid might treat uh, the foreign issues, uh, especially when it comes to Christian persecution and, of course, how those issues of freedom might function in Australia when it comes to religious freedoms here. We're taking calls, one 800 316-316. Let's hear from Liz in Jacob's Well in Queensland. Hello, Liz. Welcome along. Hello. Liz, uh, what are your first, thoughts? First, Well, a couple of things. I attend a, a Pentecostal church, wonderful Pentecostal church. Uh, I would like to thank Elizabeth first, though, for focusing on what is true and right and praiseworthy and noble and of good report, because what she's doing is bringing it to the awareness uh, bringing the truth of it, the fact of yeah. all the good work that Christians do, uh, all the feeding, all the reaching out, all the caring for and the loving of the hurt and the hopeless and not just in this country. So, um, first a all, missionary thank you. worthy of support, I think. But your response Absolutely. for Liz, uh, Elizabeth Kendall? Oh, that really, that really lifts up my heart because that's exactly what I'm trying to do. You know, I'm trying to um, to really bring before DFAT this whole idea, the whole, a proper perspective, really, of what Christianity is, of what Christians do, and to stop, you know, looking through their negative, almost like a neo-Marxist biased all the time, and to see Christianity in a new light. That's, that, to me, that is central to my ministry there. So thank you for picking that up. I feel really pleased about that. Thank you, Liz. Liz from Jacobs Well in Queensland, thank you so much for your call. And we are nearing the end of our conversation today. Elizabeth Kendall, I know that there'll be some listeners who are stirred at this point uh, to say uh, we need to get alongside Christian faith and freedom. Uh, when people go to that website, christianfaithandfreedom.org, uh, there'll be no doubt a number of links there. People will be able to see resources, uh, submissions that you've written, no doubt, uh, but also an opportunity to connect by way of prayer and by way of partnership and financial support. Uh, how do you, when people go to the website, what are you hoping that they'll do today? Well, you can go to the Christian Faith and Freedom website and have a look around and have a look at the uh, the prayer material there and the contacts, and hopefully you will will be pleased to make contact with Christian Faith and Freedom, and and even more so to donate because, you know, this sort of advocacy, this uh, raising alerting governments to the plight of persecuted Christians, um, it's not the most important sort of sort of advocacy. I, I disagree with you there a little bit. Uh, Neil, it is not the most important part, but it is, it is like a part of the body. You know, in this work of looking after the persecuted church, it's like part of a body. Uh, and every part in the body does its bit, whether it's writing or providing aid or doing advocacy. Every part does its bit, and when every part can do its bit, the body works best. And at the moment, Christian Faith and Freedom is struggling, really seriously struggling financially to the point that it's 
you know, it looks like the body might lose a leg, you know. And, you know, we can't run as fast if we lose a leg. It's as simple as that. We, we need, uh, we need every part of the body to be strong and healthy if we're going to do this ministry work well. The aid groups need to be strong. The advocacy groups need to be strong. The writers and everyone needs to be supported. So, um, you know, I really would encourage you to pray for the future of Christian faith and freedom. Uh, to give, um, to encourage the advocacy groups to support Christian faith and freedom as well. When I worked for World Evangelical Alliance, it was Voice of the Martyrs that actually funded the, um, ad- the advocacy work I did into the European Parliament. So they saw that they didn't do that sort of work and couldn't because they were an aid group. So they actually funded uh, the Religious Liberty Commission to, to get me to do it. So I wrote for the European Parliament on a monthly basis. So we're looking for that sort of arrangement where we need more support. Otherwise, part of the body is really uh, looking at uh, becoming quite unwell and quite thin. Uh, well, you've laid it Thank out you. on the line there, Elizabeth. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, if I were reflecting, I would say we need a small army of Elizabeth Kendall's doing what you do. Uh, you're providing real leadership for others who are getting a little bit of uh, an idea of, uh, you know, flesh on the skeleton uh, as to how to go about this wonderful work of ministry that you're involved in. I mean, the experience that you have had in being able to uh, glean and research and write submissions uh, that inform our our diplomats at uh, the top levels of how these issues of persecution work is absolutely just a wonderful thing that you have been able to do in an extraordinary capacity for a long time and and uh, well may it continue and you're in our prayers no doubt for listeners who are saying uh, let's get Elizabeth Kendall uh, really buoyant and doing a whole lot more great stuff and the thank way you can thank you. the way you can do that today is uh, by connecting with Christian Faith and Freedom and uh, as Elizabeth explained uh, there is a little bit of a financial crisis going on and uh, some support is necessary right now. Uh, my privilege to be able to draw your attention to that as a listener and to point you to that website how you can make a connection today. ChristianFaithAndFreedom.org That's ChristianFaithAndFreedom.org uh, and uh, have a look at what resources are there and how you can support and uh, be a supporter of that great ministry. Elizabeth, we have run out of time. Thank you so much for sharing your heart with us today on 2020. And thank you for your support, Neil. Before you go, thanks for listening. There's lots more great audio on demand, or you can listen to us live at visionradio.org.au. And remember, Vision is listener-supported. Your donation, large or small, will help us continue connecting faith to life for hundreds of thousands of people across Australia and around the world. Learn more or donate today at visionradio.org.au.